from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On today's show, we hear about LSU's new virtual footlocker project, which is helping veterans preserve their military memorabilia and share their stories. Plus, we learn why some researchers looking into disease-carrying mosquitoes have recently replaced human volunteers with synthetic skin. But first... Alabama has some of the strictest laws on prenatal drug use in the country, and running afoul of them can cost thousands of dollars, leave a woman with a felony record, and facing the prospect of giving birth in prison. Advocates and reproductive health providers say there's got to be a better way. From the Gulf States newsroom, Maya Miller looks at alternatives for pregnant women when addiction is criminalized. Stacy Freeman wasn't pregnant when she was arrested in Etowah County, Alabama last February, but the sheriff's department believed she was, and they also thought she was using drugs, so she ended up spending nearly two days in jail accused of endangering a fetus she wasn't actually carrying. The charges were eventually dropped, but her lawyer Martin Weinberg says the damage has already been done. You're criminalizing her. For being pregnant, she's not, and people are going to look at her differently and and see it differently, and it's a long-term thing that she's going to have to deal with. Beyond the circumstances of Freeman's case, Weinberg says there are deeper questions about what exactly is being accomplished by jailing pregnant women. We've had issues of folks not being able to get to their doctor's appointments, not getting their prenatal vitamins. People develop all kinds of issues during pregnancy, and a lot of it's stress-related, and that adds an element to it. Freeman was arrested under an Alabama law that was created to protect children who were exposed to home meth labs. But now, under the state's personhood laws, a chemical endangerment charge allows the state to put pregnant people in jail in the name of protecting the fetus from substance abuse. Advocates say this policy is harmful and doesn't actually protect mothers and their babies. Emma Roth, a lawyer with Pregnancy Justice, says the chemical endangerment charge comes with heftier consequences than a typical drug charge. If you are a woman who are, is pregnant, or in Stacey Freeman's case, who has the capacity for pregnancy, you face this additional felony charge that carries a much more um, severe set of potential penalties post-conviction. Roth focuses mainly on pregnancy criminalization in Alabama. She says that of the 600 chemical endangerment cases in the state that pregnancy justice have examined, the organization found that Etowah County, where Freeman was arrested, was ranked first. More than 150 women there have been imprisoned. No one from Etowah County Sheriff's Department would talk to us about this story. But Roth says that arrests and hefty bonds do more harm than good. And it drives mothers to avoid seeking treatment or prenatal care out of fear that they may be arrested. So rather than respond to pregnancy and drug use through criminal or other punitive approaches, we encourage states to use public health approaches that ensure that they and their families can thrive. A program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham hopes to do just that, to provide a healing space instead of a cell for pregnant women who have substance abuse disorders. It's called the Comprehensive Addiction and Pregnancy Program, or CAP. Suzanne Muir leads UAB's Family and Adolescent Services. It's a lot during pregnancy to be in active addiction. A lot of our women have complex needs, so they also have um, family issues and housing instability and food insecurities. Since its launch in 2017, CAP has helped more than 230 women, most who have been court-ordered for treatment in Jefferson County. 
The program connects mothers to social services, substance use treatment, and rehabilitation. It also offers access to prenatal and postpartum care, which is especially important for pregnant women who are also struggling with an addiction because they often carry a lot of shame and feel stigmatized by doctors. We hear stories all the time when women come in about how they've been treated in healthcare settings and feeling like they were invisible, um, feeling like people were talking about them, feeling like they weren't getting equitable care. CAP allows mothers to take courses together weekly and have counseling and postpartum care up to six weeks after they give birth when they can transition to another program. Having a baby is a really big turning point when looking at health behavior. That's Honor McDaniel. She's the director of maternal and infant health initiatives for March of Dimes in Alabama. She connects CAP and other organizations together to find ways toward improving birth outcomes in the state. It's not clear if there's a direct link between getting pregnant and getting sober, but studies show that becoming pregnant can be a major motivator for mothers to seek treatment for substance use disorders. And McDaniel says that's the point of these programs. It's to catch women during that narrow window of time when they're willing to ask for help. So how do we make it as easy as possible for them to get into treatment as well as navigate the system? How do we get them the resources to do so effectively and efficiently so that they don't have to remember every little detail? The end goal is healthier moms because that means healthier babies. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Personal items belonging to active duty military and veterans like handwritten letters, emails, photos, and social media posts help humanize the American war experience and can become part of our shared history. That's if they aren't lost, hidden, forgotten, or destroyed. An LSU researcher is now offering resources to make sure that doesn't happen. Edward Benoit III is an associate professor at the LSU School of Library and Information Science and director of the Virtual Footlocker Project. The Virtual Foot Locker is an online portal that's designed to provide military members with the tools to organize, store, and preserve their personal collections. He joins me now. Ed, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Ed, I know you're a military veteran, so was your father. Tell us the story. How did that relationship and shared experience lead to the creation of this Virtual Foot Locker? When I was growing up, my father had already retired. So I didn't grow up on a a military base, although... Several of my siblings did, but my father was an Air Force um, officer and he retired after 20 years. And when I decided to go into the military, it was just automatic that it was going to be the Air Force. But for me, it was as an enlisted person. Um, I was a B-52 crew chief and it was interesting uh, to be an enlisted person and have your retired officer father come visit because there was always a to-do on base when that happened. But it was just a continuation in my family of um, military service. And it was later after I was out of the military, finished all my degrees, and my father had passed away that I went up in the attic and there was his footlocker that had traveled with him 
throughout his time in the service. And in it were all the mementos, all of the memories, the uniform, the letters, the pictures, and even some knickknacks and things like that. And that got me to really start thinking about, honestly, the lack of things I had. I also became more concerned as I had finished my PhD in information studies, thinking about the digital content that is being created by the modern soldier. The fact that while deployed, military personnel are a lot more connected now than they used to be. They can send emails. There are video chats um, with social media posts, taking digital photos. All of that is relatively intangible and a lot more difficult to preserve compared to the physical counterpart. And that's what really got me started going down and thinking about, well, how can we best provide tools so that military personnel and veterans can figure out what's important, what do I need to keep, and how do I store and preserve that? So, Ed, why is it important that that um, we hold on to all of these keepsakes, even to the details of, you, you mentioned email messages, and we know your dad's letter was probably written on, on paper, but today there are email messages. What's the importance of holding on to to this part of our history of our past? There are really two parts to this question. One is for the military family itself. This is your family history. Um, For the person who served, it may be important memories that they want to hold on to. But for the family, for friends, even after somebody has passed on, looking back at your family history is one of those rare thing that we all kind of search to better understand our past and where we've come from. Secondly, there's also a societal impact. So often we only really see official documentation of war. It's really the personal mementos and stories that help contextualize, they help humanize the experience of servicemen and women. Um, I often think of those Civil War diaries and how important they are to understand what soldiers were going through at that time. If you think more recently with World War II and perhaps most famously Band of Brothers, the, the TV show as well as the book with Stephen Ambrose was primarily based off of archival material, which... These were all personal documents and letters and stories and oral histories that were collected to help better understand what the experience was. We're speaking with Edward Benoit III, an associate professor with the LSU School of Library and Information Science. He's the director of the Virtual Foot Locker Project. You you did a lot of research before even setting up the Virtual Foot Locker. You're talking a little bit about, you know, capturing it quickly, not letting so much time go by. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about the research you, you did even before setting up the, the Foot Locker. What questions did you ask? What did you find? So the research behind this actually started about five years ago with a very small pilot project just to see if what I thought I knew was worth even pursuing. And I created a survey and just surveyed about 100 veterans. 
um, using a, a small starter grant from LSU, from what's called the Dean Circle funding. And based on that, there was enough interesting information about the different types of materials that people were creating. This is saying, well, yes, I did write emails while deployed, and here are the email servers that I used, that I decided to expand that to about 500 uh, veterans. And once we had that broader picture, we could then apply for federal funding. And this is when we received a large grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to go and conduct in-person, in-depth interviews with about 100 veterans across the United States to really dig deep into what are their concerns? What would like that they like to know more about? And then COVID hit, <laughs> which meant we actually switched to online interviews. And it actually wound up being a blessing. We were able to have a wider variety of veterans participate from across not just the country, but the world. And using that information, we realized that our initial idea, which was so focused on the digital, was too limited. And we needed to be more all-encompassing, that we needed to include still the physical. How do people work with both physical and digital? And through all of this, we then developed this online portal that includes um, tutorials and resources for veterans to use. Additionally, we created a separate set of resources for the archivist, for the museum curator, for the librarian, who may want to work with veterans so they can better understand the veteran experience as well. There are actually two portals. If you go to the Virtual Foot Locker Project website, which, you know, let me let you give that website because I know there's someone's listening and it's saying either I want to start collecting my material or I have a family member or I have my own Foot Locker. I'd like to catalog some information. What are the, what are the two uh, areas where you'll find information and who's that information for? Give the website as well. Of course. It's uh, virtualfootlocker.com. So the, the two areas, the, the one is really focused primarily on veterans and active duty military. When we designed it, our main focus were on contemporary veterans, so more from the 21st century. But we have found that all of the resources there make sense for any veteran. It's just somebody from the Korean War won't have the digital material. Additionally, we've had many just general public users learn a lot about their own family materials as well. So while it is geared towards the military, it doesn't mean that somebody who's not in the military or isn't a veteran cannot learn from. Whereas the archivist side and the cultural heritage side is really aimed at people who work in cultural heritage institutions who want to start a workshop. They want to do in-person training for veterans. And how would they do that? I should also note that in addition to the online portal, we will be holding in-person workshops. Um, and because I do live here in Baton Rouge, there will be several in Baton Rouge and the surrounding area 
And there is a, a tab on the website where we will be posting as those events are finalized. Edward Benoit III is an associate professor at the LSU School of Library and Information Science and director of the Virtual Footlocker Project. Edward, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. A new synthetic skin developed in a research partnership between Tulane and Rice Universities may eliminate the need for human volunteers to study how mosquitoes transmit deadly diseases and which repellents are most effective. Mosquito bites can cause disease, a spread disease like malaria, dengue, yellow fever, and of course here in Louisiana we know West Nile virus. This new method of studying the feeding behavior of mosquitoes uses technology instead of live volunteers that includes patches of synthetic skin made with a 3D printer. Here to tell us more is postdoctoral fellow with Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, Sam Jamison. Sam, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Sam, let's start with how research into mosquito behavior has been conducted up until now. I remember an old commercial about mosquito repellent. I believe it was an old off commercial. You might be too young to remember this. It, it used the cage test, a hand going into a box full of mosquitoes to see what would happen. So that that is still used sometimes, uh, that same method. We, in the past, there's been a lot of uh, human landing collections where you basically just stand out in the field and suck mosquitoes off of you with a little aspirator as they land on you and count them up. And what we have replaced that with in the laboratory is a 3D printed hydrogel. And so it's like a jello uh, chip that has a little channel in it that we can push blood through. And the mosquitoes can land on that little jello chip and feed through it and suck the blood out. And so this gel is able to contain cells, uh, living cells, so we can approximate some aspects of the human skin uh, surface and internals of the skin, maybe some different cell types, and let the mosquitoes feed as they would naturally and apply things to the outside so we can test repellents. And it's, it's just a new platform for a whole array of new ways researching various aspects of mosquito biology. It sounds a, a lot um, less itchy. <laughs> I'll give you it that. It's absolutely less itchy. <laughs> Tell, you know, are there any advantages to using hydrogels and studying how mosquitoes transmit disease? Uh, any advantages over human or animal subjects? I know you also, in the past, animals were used. So there are advantages that we uh, can envision with this system in that we can place living cells from different animals. So if we were studying maybe a virus that's transmitted to horses, like Eastern equine encephalitis virus that we have here in the state, um, if we were studying something like that, we could, we could perfuse it with horse cells. And so it allows us to change out multiple animals. We could do human cells, we can do animal cells, uh, and look at the interactions between viruses and the mosquito and the actual cells that we've placed into the system. And so it doesn't, it won't totally remove the need for animal research, we don't think, 
Um, there's a lot going on in the skin and on the surface of the skin that science just isn't ready to replicate fully on a, on a synthetic platform. But in a limited setting where we have a very specific question that we're trying to nail down and look at specific aspects of uh, the bite system, that this is, we think that we have a, a tunable way that we can swap out things a lot faster and get a lot of animals out of this process. We're speaking with postdoctoral fellow with Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, Sam Jamison, about a new synthetic skin that's being used to study mosquitoes. Now, Sam, mosquito-borne diseases are, are caused when someone's bitten. Prevention is key here. A big thing is wearing repellent that contains DEET. Have you been able to determine anything about best practices in fighting the bite? And, and, and what, have you, what do you hope to learn even beyond that? It's a great question. So one of the major aspects of this system that we set out to use it for is repellent testing, uh, the search for novel repellents. So there's there are a lot of mosquito repellents out there. There are some newer ones that have been identified um, and is recommend and are recommended by the CDC that are not deep based, but deep really is still the go-to recommendation. Uh, because it is so highly effective, uh, at least for adults. And so what we hope to do with this platform is that one of its attributes is that it's totally built with off-the-shelf components. So we can scale it to a large size and test many, many mosquitoes all at once. Well, Sam, you know, we're we're not that it ever gets cold enough maybe to kill mosquitoes, but we're heading into mosquito season. I'll put quotes around it. I've seen a few already. And, you know, hearing talk about how we're how, how the city, how the state plans to deal with that. Is there any, any application for uh, citywide, statewide, area wide uh, mosquito abatement? Uh, integrative mosquito management practices are the norm across the state. So we, what we try to do is not spray all the time. You might notice that the trucks don't run all the time like they used to. And when they do run, they don't have a big cloud behind them like they used to. And that's because we strategically spray the lowest amount of insecticide that we can that's effective. And we only treat when we need to. Uh, we try not to spray on a schedule like every Tuesday or, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday. Got to catch the mosquitoes off guard. No. We well, we try to we try to spray. We look at rainfall and when they're going to be around and when mm. they'll grow into adults, um, so that we have the most impact on uh, improving human health and keeping West Nile back um, without just saturating the area in uh, insecticide. Now, is there any application though to your research? So, what we hope that this will do is that we will that it. With these gel stations, if we get them into the field, we'll be able to help monitor those kind of things. Um, because one of the things that you could look for is number of bites on the gel, say, um, because they do salivate, they do put out mosquito spit when they bite the gels. And so you could you could quantify that uh, to look for changes in mosquito populations, uh, as well as looking for you know potential virus surveillance. Postdoctoral fellow with Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, Sam Jamison. Sam, thanks so much. Thank you. 
from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, Associate Professor at the LSU School of Library and Information Science, Edward Benoit III, and Postdoctoral Fellow with Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, Sam Jamison. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, our digital editor, Caitlin Umholtz, our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.